This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. Well, but Thomistic Institute asked me to talk on this topic of the, the, is free will an illusion? And so I suppose they're expecting me to sort of defend the existence of free will. Right? And in a sense, I guess that's what I'm going to try to do, but only kind of in an indirect way. Because I don't really think that the existence of free will needs to be defended directly. Um, it's, kind of, it's kind of too obvious and inescapable to, to doubt it in any kind of practical way or any real way. Right? Every time we just stop and deliberate about what we're going to do, we're exercising our free will right there. And even people who argue against it, seems to me a lot of times in the very course of their arguments, they seem to assume that we have it, actually, even when they're arguing against it. Let me give you an example of that, just as a way of introducing the topic. Has any of you heard of a, he's kind of popular on YouTube and other things, a man named Sam Harris? You know that name? It's pretty popular, right? Uh, he's a good speaker. He's an author. He's a speaker. Uh, and he's popular with his book sales are an indication. He sold a lot of books. Um, he argues, he tends to argue against things, against a lot of things. I don't know if he argues for anything <laughs> much, but one of the things that he argues against is free will. And he gets a bunch of arguments. I'm, I'll refer to just one of them later on. But what interests me right now is the fact that he tries to show us Apart from his arguments, he tries to show us that we should really prefer to believe that we don't have free will. We should like that idea, and we should, we should believe that. Okay? Why? Because if there's no free will, then nobody's to blame for anything. You can't blame people for what they do, because they can't help it. Okay? They're not free. And that's kind of a comforting thought, isn't it? Not only, obviously, it's comforting because I'm not to blame for anything, right? but kind of less egoistically, you know, I can't blame others for what they do either. I can't get angry at them. I can't be disappointed in them. I can't be offended if I think, well, they can't really help it. Right? So I can be at peace with people. This is actually a really old argument. Spinoza says this. Well, I said this a long time ago, but... That's the idea, though. Belief in free will, it kind of leads to conflict. I blame people for things, and then I get angry, and all the rest. Okay. Well, maybe there's some truth in that. I, I don't want to deny that, but I think that I'd say two, I want to say two things about that. First, if it's true that without free will, there's no blame, well, then without free will, there's also no praise. If we're going to deny free will and therefore deny responsibility for the bad things we do, you have to deny responsibility for the good things we do. If I can't be angry with people, then I can't be grateful to them either. If they treat me well, it's not because they freely choose to do so. It's because they can't help it. Right? So I can't really be glad about that. I can't. Right? In fact, if Aristotle is right... If there's no free choice, then there really can't be such a thing as friendship. He says that. But the other thing I wanted to say, and this is more to my point, it's that it's kind of curious that um, Mr. Ha Mr. Harris should be trying to persuade us that it's better to believe that we don't have free will. 
He's speaking as though we had some choice about what to believe. Okay? Now, I think we do. I think we have some choice there. Okay? But it's not really consistent with what he's trying to argue. Right? He's trying to argue that we don't have free will in the first place. So this is what I was saying, that even people who argue against it, they seem to take it for granted anyway. Okay? Well, maybe he could answer that you know, if he does go around saying those things, it's because he can't help it. Right? He's not really free not to. So he doesn't have any choice either. And so he can continue to argue the way he argues. Well, that's fine. I don't, I don't at all want to say that, that he or anybody else like that is in bad faith. I think he really believes what he's, what he's arguing. You know? But the point is simply that, as a famous philosopher once said, what philosophers know as men, for example, that they have free will, they, they're liable to forget it when they do philosophy. Right. They somehow they don't know it anymore. Mm. Or if they don't forget it, they get confused about it somehow. Free, it seems to me that in practice, free will, in ordinary human life, it's perfectly obvious. Okay? But it's true that in philosophical theory, it does, there are a lot of problems that can, you can raise about it. And they're serious problems. And I'm not gonna, I can't address all of them here. But I think that at least a number of them are kind of the result of a certain confusion. Mm, that is, the result of a, of a faulty conception of free will in the first place. Mm, they don't really, they're not really arguing against what seems to me to be the true concept of free will. And so sometimes mm, when I'm asked, you know, is the, is the will free or when that question comes up, I kind of want to say, well, it depends. It depends on what you mean by the freedom of the will. Right? There are certain conceptions of free will, which I think they don't exist. That doesn't exist. You've got to have the right conception. So really what I want to do in this talk is just sketch what I would consider a fairly precise and accurate concept of free will. And I think if people had that, that clear concept, they'd be a lot less likely to deny that it exists. Right? Maybe they'd still have arguments, I'm sure they would, but some of, the, some of the problems would disappear. And of course, I'll be drawing quite a bit on Thomas Aquinas. I'm trying to try to give you his, his conception of it. So I'll divide my talk into kind of two parts. First, the first thing I want to do, I want to go over some things that I think free will is not. I'll give you five things that it isn't, and that you might think that it is. I think some people do. And that's why some of the problems arise. So I'll give you some things that it's not, and then I'll try to convey what I think the sort of the core of the nature of free will is. Okay. And I think, as I say, I think that's kind of the best way to defend its existence, just to say what it is. So here are some things that I think don't belong to the true concept of free will. In any case, they don't belong to the St. Thomas's concept. First, the will is not free about everything. Okay. What do we mean by the will? The will is just our capacity to want things because we think they're good somehow. We understand or we think that something is good and therefore we can want it. Okay. And also we think that something's bad and so we can sort of shun it or avoid it or move away from it. Okay. That's what the will is, that capacity to react that way to the things that we understand uh, that are good or bad. Okay? 
And for, for St. Thomas, anyway, there's at least one thing that we just can't help wanting. We have to want it. We're kind of naturally determined to want it, if I can use that language. And it's what he calls happiness. You just can't help it. You want to be happy, whether you like it or not. Sort of, you want to, we all want to be happy, right? And what, why is that? Because to be happy is to have the total good. It's literally, it literally leaves nothing to be desired. And that would be great, right? How can you possibly not want that? And there's something that we can't possibly want, and that's the opposite of happiness. Thomas calls it misery. Nobody wants to be miserable. It may look like it sometimes, but they might, you know, put on a sad face and make everybody else have a bad time and all, right? But they're kind of happy doing that right? in some kind of weird way. Right? So you can't, you can't avoid this desire for happiness. Now, that might seem a limit or a constraint on free will, the fact that we can't help but want happiness. Wouldn't it be freer if we weren't even determined about that, that we would have no determination at all? We just want anything, right? Just want misery or the ugly or whatever. Well, not for Thomas. He thinks that the desire for happiness is like the motor that drives free will. It sets up the possibility of free will. It's kind of what I would call the master desire. It gives us, and it, we have that desire, and it gives us kind of mastery over all of our other desires. That desire for the total good enables us to kind of be detached from all particular goods, all partial goods, and decide for ourselves whether to go for them or not, right? To determine ourselves. That's the realm of free will, the partial goods, the things that have some goodness about them, but aren't totally good, And if we didn't have that determined to the total good, we wouldn't be free because we'd just be passive. We'd just be sort of bouncing around from one thing to another, like, you know, like the, like the other animals, you know, they, they have one desire and then another desire and they just sort of follow this and do that. They have no control over their desires. Okay? We do because we have this, this dominant desire that enables us to control all the others. I'll try to, I'll go into that more in the second part of the lecture, how that works, this self-determination. But that's really important. Okay, a second thing that free will is not is a power to do things for no reason, just to act at random, right? We do a lot of things for no reason, probably, right? We do things on the spur of the moment, we do things on a whim, we do things sort of half-consciously, I might scratch my head and I don't even notice it, sort of. So we do a lot of things for no reason. And we're not really determined to do them, you know, we could have control over them, but we don't really determine ourselves to do those things. They just sort of happen, right? We could do so, I, like now I'm consciously scratching my head, I'm doing that quite deliberately, right? Because I want to make a point, okay? But usually we're just sort of passive. Free will is something active. It's something, it's a power, it's a mastery that we have. It's to be in command of one's own actions. Right? That's free will. What is the activity of free will? Well, the core of it is, is an act that we're all quite familiar with. It's an act that in Latin, Thomas calls it alexio. It's where we get election. Right? It's where we make it, it's, it's the act of choice. That's, this, that's the act of free will as such, the act of choice. Right? 
We exercise free will in making choices. What's a choice? Thomas gives a very simple formula. I think it's quite good. He says, to choose is to take one thing and reject something else. You've got alternatives. You're aware of both of them. You're looking at both of them. You take one. You're still aware of the other one, and you reject it. You could have taken it and rejected the first one, but you take this and reject that. That's a choice. So you've got two presidential candidates. You take one, you reject the other. You might also reject them both. That's another issue. But the point is, where there's a choice, you've got alternatives, and you take these two, and you take one, and you reject the other. But my point is that choices always have reasons. You always have a reason for the choice you make. You take one thing and refuse the other. Why? Because the one seems better, somehow, than the other. And that's your reason for it. Somehow it's better. To make the choice is to use that reason. This is better than that. I use that. I accept that, and I use that to form my will about the thing. Okay, I'm going to take it. I'm going to go for that. I'm going to reject the other thing because it's not as good. I, make the, I stress this because sometimes people, today anyway, treat the question of free will as if it were about a power to do things for no reason, just to act totally arbitrarily, as we say. Although arbitra arbitrary means by a judgment. That's the Latin, right? Which means you've got a reason. But people think it's that. And that result, you know, if that's what free choice were, a power to do things for no reason, the result of thinking it that way, if you can sort of show that the things that we do for no reason, they have some other cause, you can explain those things, right? Well, then you seem to eliminated free will, right? And I mention this because that's one of the arguments that Sam Harris gives. Right? He gives an argument along these lines. I don't know if you're familiar, there was a, there's a kind of a famous experiment that was conducted in the 1980s by a scientist named Benjamin Libet. Has anybody heard of the Libet experiment? Right? It, became, it became famous because it seemed to offer kind of hard scientific evidence against the existence of free will, showing that try to show that instead we're kind of determined to do what we do by unconscious processes in our brain. Okay? They try to argue that. Okay. Now, I'm not going to go into the details of the experiment because, as a matter of fact, in recent years, other scientists have come to realize that it was not a very well-conceived experiment. Why? Because it took for granted what it was trying to prove. It took for granted that those brain processes that it, that it monitored were the cause of the actions of the persons whose processes they were. It just took that for granted, and that was the whole question. Okay? So they sort of rejected that experiment. But my interest is in it is something else. It's the fact that, it's not the fact that it was debunked, which it kind of was, scientifically, but in my opinion, it had nothing to do with free will in the first place. It wasn't even about free will. Okay? So, because it, it was focusing on actions that people do, did at random, like kind of flexing a finger at a certain moment, or just making a little jerk, you know, or pressing a button, this button rather than that button, for no reason, just, okay, I'm going to press this one. Okay. Or just, or other kind of bodily, simple bodily movements that have no meaning, right? Well, now we can make choices about those things, but usually we don't because they're trivial. Right? We don't even think about them. Okay? And that's not free will. That's not where you should look for free will. That's got nothing to do with free will. Free will, free will is what you deliberate and think about and choose for a reason. And they weren't even talking about that. 
So I don't think it's even pertinent to the question of free will. Okay, a third thing that free will is not. Acts of choice, acts of free choice are not uncaused. They're not uncaused. They always, as I already said, they always have reasons. And they also have causes of other kinds, many, many kinds. The reasons are causes, and there are other causes too. What's a cause? Well, a cause is something that the existence of a thing depends on. Okay? If the existence of a thing depends on something else, that other thing is, is a cause of it. Okay? So the existence of choices depends on a lot of things, right? Depends on you. If you didn't exist, your choices would not exist. That's kind of obvious, right? Uh, they depend on your desire for happiness. That's a cause of your choices. Mm, there's other, there are a lot of other causes, influences on our choices. Mm, maybe you stop studying and you go get a pizza. Why? Well, you were hungry, right? That's a cause of your choice, obviously, right? Um, and it, because the, your hunger makes eating a pizza seem better than studying, right? Maybe it seems better anyway, even when you're not hungry. That's a different problem. Or you go to this pizzeria rather than that pizza. Why? Because somebody told you this is a great pizzeria. So you, you, that's a cause of your choice, that advice that you got. Those are the, free choices can have all sorts of causes. Those are not incompatible with its being free because they don't determine the choice. What's incompatible with free choice is some cause that determines it. By that I mean makes it impossible not to exist. It makes it necessary to exist. Right? You eat because you're hungry. Does that mean it was impossible for you not to eat? Well, no. A lot of times people are hungry and they decide not to eat anyway. Right? You might be, you know, you might be do, doing penance, or you might just be want to prove that you can you can do it without it, right? Or whatever. You might be want to make want to make a philosophical point. You have all sorts of reasons for doing that. Okay? Free choice is a power to determine our own desires and our own actions. So we make that determination. It can't already be determined. If it's already determined, if it's already decided, then you can't decide it. That's obvious. But it can have all sorts of influences, all sorts of causes. A fourth thing, mm, freedom of choice is not incompatible with a lot of predictability in our behavior. Right? They're making predictions about people all the time, right? Especially you know in the marketplace, they're, they're, all, they're always studying statistics about who buys this and who sells that, and all, right? Because and they and they predict with a fair about a fair amount of success. How many people are going to buy this, the new iPhone? They probably know within a fairly, you know, a fairly small margin of error, right? And that's okay, right? That's okay, again, because our choices have influences, and the physical world and the human world, society, are fairly stable things. They produce this kind of known influences that people will respond to in fairly known ways. You know, Thomas, St. Thomas even thought that astrology worked. He thought that the stars influenced our temperament depending on which stars we were born under. He really thought it could work. He didn't have any trouble with that, because right? he said they influence our bodies, and our bodies have a lot of, how our bodies respond to things, have a lot of influence on the choices we make. That's pretty obvious, right? Mm -hmm. 
That's, and that doesn't go against free choice. Um, the fact that we go, the fact that we often act in accordance, let's say, with our temperament or with our feelings of the moment. Okay? We often do that. If, if you're, if a person is has an irascible temperament, right? They tend to get angry. Well, they tend to make choices that work to satisfy their anger. They have a certain tendency to do that, right? So that's not necessarily good, but that happens. Right? But Thomas insists, and I think he's right, that our temperaments, even though they make us kind of predictable in a certain way, they don't determine us. Because we can stop and reflect on our temperaments and decide, hey, I'm not going to go that way. An irascible person can say, hey, you know, I'm kind of irascible. I don't like that. I'm going to change. So the next time he's tempted, he gets angry. So, okay, I'm going to wait. I'm not going to act on my anger. People, people do that. Right? People don't always act in accordance with their feelings or with the, you know, they change their character. Even that happens. Right? Thomas, you know, thinking of astrology, he quotes the great astronomer Ptolemy, remember Ptolemy, who says, the wise man who stops and thinks about what he's doing. The wise man is above the stars. So he's not determined. He's got these influences, but he's not determined by them. Right? It's hard to do that. It's hard to go against one's character or to change one. But it's possible. People have done it. There are a lot of stories of that. So that doesn't determine us. One other thing. I've been speaking about character, you know, kind of virtues and vices, right? That brings us to the idea of moral responsibility. Well, our power of free choice does bring with it sort of the drama of good and evil, right? We think of free choice, we think of the power of choosing, you know, you know, Eve choosing to eat the, the, the fruit, the, cho the choice between good and evil, right? But I would want to say that free choice is not mainly about that. We do have that. We can choose between right and wrong, right? But that's not essential to free choice. It's an imperfection free choice. It means the possibility of not using our minds to the full in deciding what we're going to do. We have that possibility of not really thinking things through. We can fail to think things through. And that's complicated to explain that, right? why that's the case and how that happens. But I always say, if we want to study free choice, we should, we'll have to get to the question of good and evil, and I'll talk about it again a little later. But it's not the first question. We should talk about choices between goods. Right? And can, they can be serious goods, you know, like the choice of a career. You're always thinking about, what am I going to do with my life? Well, that's a choice, right? It's not between good and evil. You're not choosing between being a, you know, a doctor and a terrorist, I hope, I suppose. You know, right? But they're all good choices, right? But, but, so good and evil is, is a kind of a, a separate problem that has to be addressed on its own. So let me just sum that up. We've got these five things. Free choice is not a power to choose absolutely anything. We don't choose to what happens if we have to. It's not a power to act at random or for no reason. It's not a power to produce acts that have no causes at all. It's not incompatible with predictability. And it's not essentially or primarily a power to choose between good and evil. Choice between goods. Okay, so that's the negative side. Um, 
Maybe I'll just go through and then we can have questions at the end. Unless, unless there's something that's totally unclear, totally unintelligible. Well, if it's all been unintelligible, then I can't, I can't go through it all. But, but can I, should I just go ahead? Okay, let's do the positive side then. What free will is. It's the power to determine one's own desires. To give oneself desires. And that's the power to make choices. Okay. Let's see what that consists in. I said before, a choice is taking one thing, refusing another. It's kind of a two-pronged action. Right? It bears on the thing that you take and on the thing that you reject. Right? It's a decision. You know, the word decision literally means cutting something off. Right? So you, you cut one part off and you take the other. You got these alternatives, you cut one, cut one, set one aside, and you, you accept the other one. And Thomas says that the will, being free, determines itself it, insofar as it does that, insofar as it takes one thing rather than another. So it's a self-determined act. I make that decision. Right? How are we capable of that? Well, there's two factors, basically two factors. One is the fact that we can make comparisons. We can have alternatives before us and compare them. Okay? We, look, we look around, we see the alternatives, we gather up the pros and the cons, okay? and we make a decision based on that. When we do make the decision, why do we do it? We, we, because one seems better than the other. Okay? That's our reason for the choice. Okay? One alternative seems better. And again, we always choose for a reason. So we've got this power to make comparisons. That's not the only thing, though, okay? because sometimes comparisons, you know, the result of a comparison is kind of fixed and determined. Right? If I compare the number three with the number six as to which one is bigger, well, I really don't have any choice about that. Right? It's kind of, you know, six is bigger. You can't, there's, there's no alternative. Right? There's no, that's the only answer. But when we deliberate about our actions, we're not only comparing things about as to their size or some other very limited criterion like that. We might compare, we might use that too, but it's only one of the criteria. We're asking which one is better, this or that. We're comparing things as to their goodness, okay, their desirability, which means that we're looking at them from the point of view of that master desire that I talked about before. We're looking at them from the point of view of happiness, which is the total good, perfect good. Okay? And goodness, the good is huge for Thomas. The good covers all sorts of things. Okay? The size of something might be part of its goodness, but not always. Okay? It's huge. Mm. Thomas's expression is bonum est multiplex. The good is manifold. There are many kinds of good, many forms of good. We've got, just think about it. You could make the, the list could be really long. You've got a good deed, good food, okay? good music. You make a good guess, right? Just anything, right? It's a good chair, okay? It's a good evening, it's you know, whatever. There's goodness all over the place. Okay? And even negative things can be good. You know, heat is good, but sometimes it's better to turn off the heat. Okay? That's good. Okay? Too much of a good thing is not good. Okay? So goodness comes in many forms. And the things we make choices about have many forms of goodness in them. 
And this, this has a lot to do with free choice, right? Because when you have alternatives, one of them is, might be better in one respect, according to one form of goodness, but not as good with respect to another form of goodness. And so you're kind of, you can kind of go either way. It's kind of simple, but it's, that's the idea. Um, take an example. Suppose I need a car. Okay, here's one. Somebody offers me a car. It's a beautiful car. It's glamorous. It's fast and sleek, and it's really powerful, but it's expensive. Right? And then there's another car there that's much less, much less expensive. It's very economical. It's kind of clunky, kind of ugly. It's not as fast. Right? but it's less, it's less expensive. Now, I could afford the, the expensive one. I could just barely afford it, and it's fast, and it's beautiful, and all the rest. It would cost me, but I could do it. The other one, I could certainly pay for it. I'd have to put up with my friends making fun of it, because it's kind of an ugly, clunky car. They would make fun of it, I know that. I don't like to be made fun of. Okay, so, I have this, so I've got these alternatives. They're sort of good and bad mixed in, in both of them. Okay? It's not an easy choice. Now, what do I do? Well, I could keep on deliberating. Maybe the, a third car will come along, right? Or I could consider other features about these cars. But again, there may be no absolute winner. There may be no clear, this is absolutely the best choice to make, the best car to buy, right? And I don't even have to go on deliberating, really. I could, I could already make a choice. Right? I could decide, I'm gonna choose right now. That's a choice too, right? And I can make a choice even though the alternatives kind of leave it open in themselves. This is better in one way, that's better in the other way, right? Whichever one I choose, I'm gonna choose for what's better about it. But I could have chosen the other one for what's better about it instead. I could, I take the fast and glamorous car because it's fast and glamorous, despite the fast that it's expensive, it's expensive. Or I take the clunky car because it's economical, despite the fact that it's kind of clunky. Now you might say, well, if that's the situation, then really it boils down to a choice between glamour, I'm just using that, the glamorous car and the economical car. I'm choosing between glamour and economy, right? So don't I have to decide between those, those two values, those two forms of good, that's what I'm calling them. Right? Well, I do, and I might deliberate about that. But again, there might be no clear winner, and I don't think there has to be. It's I who decide my priorities. Which one am I gonna give more importance to? The glamour or the economy? It's I who decide that, right? Mm -hmm. And I don't have to undertake a separate deliberation. Just in choosing this one rather than that one, I've chosen for that value rather than the other one, okay? And I can do that. Now you might say, and some people do say, well, don't I need another criterion? If I'm choosing between, glamour is one criterion, this is more glamorous, and so that's better. Economy is another criterion, this is more economical, so it's better than that. If I'm gonna choose between the two, don't I need a third criterion? Right? And that will decide it. I don't think you do, okay? They are both criteria for the choice. Glamour is better than economy as far as glamour goes. It's more glamorous. Glamour is more glamorous, right? And economy is more economical, right? 
So I, I can use either one to make to reject the other. Right? I don't need another criteria. Some people think I do, but I don't think that's true. I think, no, I'm just going for glamour. Glamour is great. Right? Or I'm going for economy. Right? And I know, I know what I'm rejecting. I've got a reason for it. Right? There doesn't have to be an absolute winner. I have a reason, and that's good enough. My reason doesn't determine me. Nothing about the alternatives that I see determines my choice. It gives me a reason for the choice, but, and it's sufficient for me to make the choice, but it's not compelling. I could have taken the alternative. I could have taken the other alternative. Right? I make the choice. The choice isn't determined, isn't predetermined. The choice is a determination that I make, and it wasn't there before. We make new decisions that didn't exist before, that's all. We start new paths in our lives. So, well, now here's a problem, though. I said that happiness, we desire happiness necessarily. We can't help that. Okay? Now, there are some things that a person takes to be necessary for happiness. For instance, I'll just talk about the things I know. Christians take it to be necessary for happiness. They take it that you have to avoid sin. Okay? You can't be happy if you sin. You've got to get rid of sin. Right? We sort of believe that. Okay. And yet, it's possible for Christians to sin, right? Or at least that's what I'm told. Right? I've kind of heard that. But then it seems like now we've got two possibilities. Either we do choose for no reason. When you sin, you've got no reason for it, right? And it's arbitrary. Or something else other than ourselves makes us do what we do, right? The devil made me do it, or something made me do it. Right? And it's not I who made the choice. Now, here I am talking about the choice between good and evil, right, right and wrong. Right? And as I said, this is a bit complicated. But let me see if I can lay out Thomas's answer here kind of briefly. He doesn't think that the possibility of sinning or of going against one's own better judgment because that's what one, one does, a Christian does when they sin, and, and everybody is capable of doing that in some way. Christians are not. They can go against their own idea of right and wrong, right? Um, he doesn't think that's an exception to the rule that we always choose for a reason, right? Or that we, there's always something, when a person sins, I'm using that word, or does something wrong, it's because there's something that they see as good about it, or is desirable about it, something attractive about it. Right? Now, it's only a, from a partial point of view. On the whole, they believe that that's not, that's not a good reason for choosing it. Right? But, so when a Christian thinks about life as a whole and about heaven and all, and they're thinking clearly about that, well, they see that sin is not a real alternative. It's no good. It's not going to get us where we want to go. Right? But we're not always thinking of things from that point of view. Sometimes we have a sort of partial perspective Right? And from that perspective, what's attractive about the sinful or the wrong thing or the sinful thing strikes us, and we're not thinking about the fact that this is going to take us, this is going to derail sooner or later. We're not thinking about that. And so we can go for it. Now, we could have stopped. You could stop and say, oh, wait a minute. Do I really want to do this? Let's study this. And sometimes people do that. A temptation shows up, and they say, wait a minute, let's, let's think about this. And they say, no. But 
you might just go for it. Okay? And then later you regret it. You say, wait, that was wrong. I shouldn't have done that. But that's how that's possible. But you still had a reason for it. Okay? But it's, there's it's that complicated factor of we're not always thinking totally clearly about our lives. And we could be thinking clearly, more clearly than we are. And that's up to us to do that. Right? Okay. So that's why I say that the possibility for doing something wrong or doing evil or sinning, it's a weakness of free will. If we always had everything clear in our minds about what we value most and always had those <coughs> present to us, we wouldn't do that. We wouldn't sin. Okay? We wouldn't do what we ourselves believe to be wrong. But we don't always have that, that frame of mind, and we, sometimes we fail to bring ourselves into that frame of mind at the moment when we need to make a choice. Okay, one other question. Could there be free choice without the possibility of sinning? Could there be free choice where you can't do anything wrong, you can only do things that are right? Do you think that exists? How many people think that exists? You think that exists? Good. Yeah, I think that, I think that exists, right? Another way to put it is, is there free choice in heaven? The angels and the saints, you know, they can't commit sin. That's what we believe. They, 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 they see God, and God is so wonderful that they can't possibly choose to offend him. And they just, it's great. Okay? Well, I would want to say that heaven is where free choice really comes into its own, that they are freer than anybody. That's what I would want to argue. What we have in this life is only a shadow of that. We have free choice, but it, it's only a shadow, and it's connected with the fact that we can... We can choose wrongly or make, make bad choices. Think of, here's a comparison. See if this works. Think of this, of the sort of heavenly, if I can use this example, a heavenly basketball player named Michael Jordan. You guys have heard of Michael Jordan, right? right. We have that in common from Chicago. Yeah, it's kind of okay, Michael Jordan. Now, compare him to some sort of amateur player, you know, a guy who plays you know, pickup games on the weekends and stuff. Okay. Now, Jordan, whatever he does, he can't make a blunder. Or almost, let's, let's assume that. That may be exaggerating a little bit. Even Jordan could make a mistake, I suppose. But let's assume he could never make a basketball mistake, never commit a basketball sin. Jordan, he's just perfect, right? Whereas the amateur player, he's making mistakes all the time, right? He's doing dumb things. Right. Okay. Well, now, which of them plays with more freedom of choice? Isn't it obvious? Jordan's play, it's always perfect, but it's the variety of it is amazing. He's always coming up with new ways to, to put the ball in, you know, through the hoop, right? It's wonderful, and it's, and it's different every time. The amateur, he's got three moves. He always makes the same three moves, and he doesn't even do them all that well, right? You know, that's, that's, that's the thing about sin. It's boring. For the most part, I can tell you that. I, can, I think I can say that kind of from experience. It's kind of boring. Not for, sorry, if not from my own. Well, from my own too, but it's, you know, from the ones I've heard. It's, just kind of, it's always the same old stuff. Okay? Virtue finds a million different ways to do the good thing. Okay? And, the, and in heaven... One sees God in his infinite goodness. One knows the good better than ever. Okay? The way Jordan knows basketball. He knows all the possibilities of basketball. Okay? 
He sees them all and he can take this, he can do this or that and the other thing, okay? God is, uh, is irresistible. They don't have a free, free choice to say no to God, but they, always, they also see an endless variety of ways of imitating God, of imitating his goodness and of serving his goodness. So they got all kinds of amazing choices that we haven't even thought of, right? We're like the amateurs. We've got a few choices we can make and not all of them are very good, right? So that's why I say that, that I think free choice is, is best in heaven. Right? The fact that the choice between good and evil, that's what we get worked up about. That's, what we, that's our drama in this life, right? But that's not the main thing. So just to sum up, a choice is an act of taking one thing and refusing another. The freedom of it depends on two things, the power to make comparisons and sort of the hugeness of the good and the fact that the good comes in many forms, okay? kind of irreducible forms that we can compare with each other. Freedom to make bad choices involves a third factor, which is not a power really, but a weakness, and the weakness of not always having in mind what we really most deeply want. Without that, without that weakness, we would never do anything blameworthy and yet we would have free choice. And in that case, maybe even Sam Harris wouldn't mind having free choice if we couldn't do anything blameworthy, because then it wouldn't be a source of conflict. Well, I had one other thing, but this may be taking us too far afield on how free choice kind of relates to God's causality in our lives. That's hard, right? But maybe I'll hold that off, because I think the time is about up, right? And, uh, and if, we can, if we get into that in the question period, maybe we can talk about that. But that's probably enough. Or maybe it's already too much. So that's it. Okay. So here's um, so one question, maybe it would be. So it seems like uh, one, one thing I've kind of struggled with sometimes is understanding where Aquinas falls on the whole like libertarian compatibilist divide in contemporary philosophy. Um, and it seems like, so his, his account of freedom of choice here depends upon the goods we're talking about. They're, they're, they're unable to be compared. I wouldn't use that language. I know people do. I don't like that. Okay. But well, go ahead with your question. Whole, okay, yeah. Maybe you can help me with yeah, okay. there. But, but I, I guess I'm wondering, and maybe maybe this that'll answer my question, but it seems like though they can be compared because they meet up in this common measure of, of, of happiness. Yes, you're right. Right. And so it, it, I guess I'm, I'm wondering if, uh, say, if I, if I knew perfectly the degree to happiness to which each of the goods would give me, would, would that still yeah. leave me the ability to choose otherwise? Okay, yeah. good. Thank you. You understand the question is a good question. Um, well, first, let me say this. I, the reason why I don't like incommensurate, it sounds like they're really incomparable, right? So it just, you got my, you know, my example before. You've got economy and you've got glamour and they're just sort of these two things. And, and I think we can compare any two things. The human intellect, mind is such that we can compare anything with anything else. We can relate to, right? I, I, instead of saying that they're incommensurable, I think they're multi-commensurable. You, you can compare them from many points of view. And each of one of them is a point of view that you can compare it to the other. So I can compare glamour to economy 
from the point of view of glam grammar, and glamour with respect to how glamorous it is and sort of thing. Now, you're right that, that this kind of, the reason why they come together in our minds under the umbrella of good is ultimately under the umbrella of happiness, the total good, right? Now, if happiness, if the total good were, I think I can use this, if it were what Plato says, if it were kind of one single finite form, right, then all other goods would be just degrees of that. Use that language, degrees. It would be a kind of quantitative thing, right? But that's not how Thomas thinks of it. It's a, it's an, it's a kind of a, it's an infinite form and many different forms share in it. This is really hard to understand, but I think you've got you to go there to make sense out of this. I mean, ultimately, God, and we're talking about God in the end, happiness is kind of an, a pale reflection of the divine. And there's something uh, infinite about it so that many different forms, irreducibly many finite forms, are all likenesses of that. And, share. and so each of them, the, there's not only one way to compare them with respect to that. It's not, okay, this just wins out com compared to God. Some things do. Obviously, some things do win out, absolutely. But there are other things which you can go either way. And one is more like, more like God in one respect or more, more conducive to happiness in one respect, and another is more conducive to it in another respect. And you just can't reduce them to one respect, right? It's kind of, I think that's kind of the idea, the, the infinity of the, of, the, of the nature of the good, so to speak. Yeah, uh, but in, yeah, so when we're talking though with finite goods, right, when we're choosing finite goods, I mean, is there, when will will there be an answer always as to which choice will, will give me the most? Uh, no, I don't think yeah, there I mean, will. I don't think there'll be one answer. Okay, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah. yeah. because we're comp we're comparing against the backdrop of the infinite. Right. Oh, I see. Okay. Right? Yeah. yeah. You're comparing them. They're comparing finite things, right? But with respect to something that has a certain infinity about it. Right? Okay. Okay, thank you. Yeah, I think that's the only way to go. I don't know any way. So I would say Thomas is very definitely an incompatible, a libertarian. Okay, right? okay. And some people try to argue that he's okay with compatibilism of a certain kind. I don't see it. Okay. I really, maybe he's not coherent, but I don't think he, I think he would reject that. Yeah. Right. Yeah, good. Did you have some? Yeah. Um, I gather you would, you would say that the fact that God knows what our decision is going to be does it impact on our choice or our free will? Uh, yeah, I would say that. Okay. That's really hard. I, I know some people think that because he knows, then then it's determined. Really free, right? determined. Oh yeah, I know. I know that. Yeah. Um, Thomas denies it. Right. This is really that's very hard. It's partly because God is, as they say, outside of time. Mm -hmm. Right. It's not as though looking at me now and what there is in me now, you can say what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow. Right? But God knows what I'm going to have for lunch tomorrow, right. right? Because he sees me having it, so to speak, right. already. And he sees me making that choice at that moment. Right? But that choice is not foreseeable from anything past, anything prior to it. And the fact that he knows it, he's able to know that with certainty, even though I really do have the power not to do it. He knows what I'm going to do, but it's not because I don't have the power not to do it. Now, we don't know things like that. If we're certain about something, it's because the thing has no power to do otherwise. Okay? That's our certainty. He has, he has a different relation. And that's really hard to understand. I mean, there's a mystery there. 
most I think you can say that well, there has to be a cause of the world like that, okay, who is able to do that. How he can do it, that's like asking how does he create or something, you know, and that's, that's too much, right? But yeah, that's right. Thank you. Okay. Yeah. Um, for going back to Sam Harris, I know one of his like main arguments that free will doesn't exist is he does kind of this like chain reaction argument where you're born and you don't control like your genetics or anything, you don't control your environment. Yeah. That shapes who you are by the time you yeah. start maybe being able to make decisions. Your decisions are only based on things you can control. Yeah, sure. Yeah. How do you kind of unravel that? Well, yeah, sure. Now, well, that's what I say. We've got all sorts of influences on our on our actions, and you can tell the story in such a way that it sounds like you know everything was kind of yeah, it was just sort of a domino effect or whatever. You know? um, Aristotle does that in the metaphysics. He said, yeah, well, a guy he's sitting in his house. He's got a house out in the country. He's sitting in the house. He gets thirsty. He goes outside to the well. He happens to go outside with a bunch of of thugs. Right, and they 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 kill him and take it and and rob him and stuff. And so this was sort of inevitable, right? You could just see it coming because he got thirsty. Well, but Aristotle himself doesn't believe that. Right? He says that you can tell the story that way. But how do you explain then the fact that people whose whose situations seem to be virtually practically identical? There's no significant difference. You know, twins who are who are raised in exactly the same environment with the same parents. They can choose very differently. They can make very different choices. Okay, I but I think really deep down, it's it's the point is we can be we can be conscious of the influences on us. Okay, and okay, um, I don't know what's a good example. Well, you know the, the typical example I always use. You know, she was always so good because she's the minister's daughter, right? But then somebody else comes. You know, she was really rebellious. And bad, why? Because she's the minister's daughter. And both, you know, it can go both ways. Right? So we have these influences, but who's to say that, why, why, it's just an assumption to say that they determine us and that we can't reflect on our influences and decide for ourselves how we want to let those impact our lives or not. Who's to say? He's just assuming that. Of course you can tell a story. Okay? It seems to me really that that argument is assuming a concept of free choice, which is choices that don't have causes. Okay. I think he's assuming that when he says that. He's assuming that by free choice, you mean some uh, the power to make actions, to make choices that have no causes. And I'm not, that's not free choice. Okay, good. Yeah, um, I was just curious, so do you think that, is it possible to rank two goods compared to each other? You said like economy, and uh, glamour, yeah, glamour, yeah, yeah. That you don't need a third thing. Yeah, I, yeah, I think you can. I think you. I can just. I'm going to give more. I think we can just make our priorities. Right? Do you think there's a better way to make priorities? Well, something. Yeah, no. There's 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 a bad way to make priorities. Certainly, there, and there are some things that are definitely better than others. Clearly don't, better. Don't than you others. need a third thing? No. Sometimes yeah. the thing itself is clearly better. I don't know. Um, I don't know, let's say um, wisdom is better than uh, peanut butter, Yeah. for example. I mean, yeah. if I'm going to choose they're both, they're, they're, they're both goods, goods. yeah, yeah. But you'd have to be in a pretty weird state of mind to prefer a peanut butter. Don't you need butter. a third thing to say Why? that wisdom is better? Well, I mean, I love peanut butter. <laughs> <laughs> well, so do I. Right. So don't you need like, um, 
obviously. Well, you have the, the third thing is the good. That's all. That's kind of the third thing. But you don't need a third thing. to that this, When I say you don't need a third thing, I mean you don't need one that decides the choice. That okay. says, okay, it has to be this yes. rather than that. Yeah. There is always this third thing, which is the good. Yeah. But that, a lot of times, can go either way. It can't always go. It's clear that wisdom has more goodness in it than peanut butter. Maybe. Maybe. Well, okay, we can talk about that later. Yes, we can worry about that. Right, but that's all, that's all I want to okay. say, that, that you don't need the third in order to, because you don't need to determine the choice in the first. A lot of times we're just assuming you need something that, has, that decides the question for me. Because yeah. we don't like to be free. You tell me what to do. Give me something that makes it impossible. We don't like to have alternatives that I just have to make the choice. And that's it. We don't like that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. When you say that the elect are those that choose God or those that God chooses. Oh, that's uh, this, this is getting a pretty thick. This is kind of connected with the both. Both. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, tell me where where you want me to come down on this one. Well. If God chooses me, do I have any power to say no? Yes, you do. So does God choose everyone? I don't know the answer to that question. It seems like he doesn't, right? You'd have to ask him about that. So if right? I choose God, can God say no? If you choose God, he'll say yes. But he could say no. No, I think he, not, given the, not given the promises that he's made to us. He always follows his promise. But what's the point here? God's choice is, um, I mean, we're in, the dozo, we're in the domain of predestination. Right? Right? Um, and Thomas is very clear. That, I mean, there is a Catholic concept of predestination, right? But he's very clear predestination is not predetermination. Those aren't the same thing, right? Is that... And that's different from other concepts of predestination. I was just reading uh, the other day a guy you know, in a, on a website. He's, 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 he's a well-known Calvinist author. He says it's predetermination, and that you have no choice, really. And you like, really can't help it. Okay? And they don't really choose, then. At least not out of my definition of choice. Okay? Um, in, the case of, in the case of Thomas's view, God knows who it is. God gives his grace to everyone. He gives his grace, or offers his grace to everyone. And he knows who's going to take it and who's not going to take it. Okay? And the ones that were, who are going to take it, they take it because he's given it to them and he's chosen them. Okay? But they have the power to refuse. So they make a definite choice. He knows that they won't make that, the, the bad choice. And they make the good one only because of the help that he gives. But his, the help that he gives them doesn't take away their power to choose the other, otherwise. He just knows that they won't choose. So if it's up to my decision, what assurance do I have that I won't lose that salvation? Because you don't have any. You don't have any. Right? Not in this life. We, like St. Thomas says, predestination is not something in the predestined person. It's only in God's mind. You have, we have no certainty. We have hope. We have we have a hope in, in Jesus and in God and God's grace. And all. But in this life, we have we can't be certain of it. It's only in the next life. So we have to make a choice. That's the point. So I could be on my deathbed and not know 
Yeah. Yeah. What we have to do is ask for it. We ask, especially the death, but that's, that's good. You know, final perseverance, as we call it, right? We have to pray for that and ask for it. And it's a grace, and God will give it to us if we ask for it. You know. But we can't know. We can't be certain. That's why we have to keep... You know, if, think of if you if you were certain, right? What, what would you do, right? That, that could be a problem, right? We get kind of lazy. Well, if you truly love God, I would say no. Because if you truly love God, you would. If I truly love my. No, God, you're right. You're right. But but no, you're right. If you truly, we would do the same thing. You're right. I agree with that. Um, but in fact, we don't know. How are you how are you gonna know? Unless he tells you. I mean, if he tells you, he'll tell you, but I don't think he generally tells us. Be nice if he did. <laughs> um, but then he'd probably have to, if, you know, if he told everybody who is chosen, then the ones who did, he didn't tell, they'd know that they weren't. And then they might despair. And he doesn't want to cause them to despair. Isn't that scary? Especially as a, as a father, is that not scary? Well, of course, it's, I mean, life is a risk, yeah, right, yeah, it's, it's, it's a risk, but what, but, yeah, it's kind of scary. <laughs> you could live your whole life as a, as a good Christian, as, as a priest leading a flock, and you could still be terrified that you're going to hell the next day. Well, I'm not, no, I don't think we should be terrified, though, because the, the, the because our Lord is, is good and merciful, and he loves us, and he's given us all the means that we need in order to stay close to him and not lose his love. And they're right there. We have to have confidence in him. Okay? We have to have a, a ton of confidence in him and very little confidence in ourselves. Okay? And I don't think that's a source of terror if we really know how good he is. Okay? It's, not, I mean, it's not that easy. We can, we're all capable of sinning. But if, if, you, if you've, let a, you haven't been trying to live a good life you know, for a long time, it's not that easy either. I mean, you couldn't just you couldn't just go out and murder somebody right now. You couldn't do it. Right? I mean, you just couldn't do it. It takes practice to do that. Right? It, it, it takes effort. Right? So I don't think I don't think it's a reason to be terrified. Uh, hope is this is this is the virtue of hope. Hope has a kind of certainty that first of all, belief in God's promises and His power and His love. How much does He love me? He died for me. That's a, that's a lot. Not that. Okay? And, and it also has a certain that I'm determined to do what I need to do in order to obtain what he's offered to me. I'm, I'm, I've made a really determined choice. Okay? And that, I don't think I need to be terrified. I need to be vigilant. Okay? That's not being terrified. So whenever I'm walking through, whenever I as a Christian am walking through times of spiritual dryness, and it's not like I'm not trying to be close to God or anything, I'm still, you know, I'm still involved in Christianity. I'm still reading the Word. Yeah. You know, but I'm still like, oh, I don't feel don't the feel spiritual it. high that I used yeah. to feel. Yeah. What kind of assurance do I have? Because at that point, what I rest on is the fact that Christ holds me and not that I hold him. Well, not only that, not only that, it seems to me, you rest on the fact that you still have faith. Faith is not a feeling. You can feel totally dry, and God can feel a thousand million miles away. But you still believe in you still, you still, as you say, you still go to the things, you still say your prayers, right? And then, that may be when he's most pleasing to you, because you're doing it for him. You're not doing it because it's a nice spiritual candy. Okay? Faith is, is in the mind and it's in the will. It's not in the feelings. Okay? 
And you know whether you have faith or not. And you're hanging on to that faith, and it may be really hard because the feelings don't support it, but faith is really strong. It can be really strong, even in moments of great jobs, I think. Okay? Alright. Yeah. Um, is our power to choose otherwise dependent or independent of God's creative choice? Because I don't see how it could be undetermined if it was unless God can through through the act of creation somehow give over his own execution to like a random number generator. Like when we create, we can do, we can give that over, but it's not just his knowledge, I see, but it's his knowledge, and it's every action is, um, every action by God is, uh, oh no, purposeful, because he can't be anything other than purposeful. I lost you there. Okay. Is our power to choose otherwise, is that dependent or independent of God's creation? Well, it's totally dependent on him. We couldn't possibly do it without him, right? Because the, the power to choose depends on that desire for happiness, as I mentioned, and only God can cause that desire. That's an infinite desire. Only a divine being could cause that. Free choice is impossible without God's causality. Not only is it compatible with it, it's impossible without it, okay? He gives us that, and he gives us our minds and our capacity to com compare uh, alternatives and all that, and to determine ourselves. He gives us all of that, right? And he knows which choice we're going to make. Um, random number, Jane. It's not as though anything is left. He knows all the details. Some, some authors, even C.S. Lewis, says stuff like this, and I don't think he's right about that. Lewis says that God writes the whole history, the whole story of the world like a, like a dramatist, Right, like Shakespeare or something, but he leaves he leaves a little improvisation to the to the actors, and that's us. Right? No, he knows absolutely everything that's going to happen in his plan. Everything is what it is. Right? But you use the word execution, and this is Thomas. He says, but in the execution of it, the execution of it, we we are the ones who execute his plan, and we execute some of it freely. Okay, and that's part of his plan too that we do it freely. Okay. Now that's that gets kind of mysterious at that point, because okay? he's not determining us to do it. Okay? And we, we, that means that I have in myself the power to do this and the power not to do it, and I do this, and he knows which one I'm going to do. But he doesn't take away my power to do the opposite. But if his, if every act from God is purposeful and knowledgeable, then it would have to be determined, right? Why? Because that's what determines me. Purposeful is the same as, I don't think so. I mean, God has a purpose in everything he does, but he, part of his, one of his purposes is to cause, he purposefully causes free choices to come about. Okay? And some of them, some of the free choices go against his purpose. Some of our choices go against, in a sense, his purpose, but they fulfill a larger, he allows them only for a, a purpose too, right? So let's, you gotta bring that in, factor that in, that not everything, that in God's world goes directly in God's direction, in the direction of his purpose. Some of it he allows to happen, even though it's not in itself for his purpose. But he's going to bring that, bring it back anyway, against the will, maybe, of the person who does it. Right? So you have to factor in allowing things uh, that aren't part of his purpose, too. Right? He allows them, and then, and then he'll bring them 
he'll, as, as Augustine says, he'll bring good out of evil. But he allows the evil. Evil doesn't serve its purpose in itself. It's not aimed at his purpose. But he brings it back. I don't know if that, is it? I don't know if that answers your question. Maybe we'll have to talk. Wait, well, let this, because you asked. Right? Yeah, you're good. Um, so in the Thomistic framework, uh, is, uh, does God will the elect, or does he, is election more a faculty of God's will, or rather it's so well, it's both. It's both. Yeah. Simple, but. Yeah. Well, because he, he's simple, and because it pertains, predestination pertains is a part of what Thomas calls providence, and providence is a function of both intellect and will. Okay. But so this is, it's a choice. He chooses the elect. I guess. That's why they're called the elect. They're chosen. Yeah. Okay. So okay. you would say that the mystic framework, the philosophy itself, is more volitional. So that's more emphasized. Well, usually Thomas is called an intellectualist, right? And that kind of fits with what I've been saying, that it's, it's, it's the will that makes the choices. Freedom is in the will. But the reason why the will is free is the, is the way the intellect presents the will with its objects, right? The, because we can make comparisons and because we understand the good and all that, right? So, and some people think that intellectualism leads to a kind of determinism, but it, Thomas is, I don't think Thomas is that, but... It, he thinks the intellect is the higher power. That's the question. That's what I'm yeah, saying. yeah. He thinks the intellect is the best thing, okay. and the and the highest good is is a kind is an act of knowing, and it's true. Is the high, is knowing the first truth, the divine truth. So that's the best. But the will is right there. You know, it's pretty close in, right? But yeah, good. Who had? Uh, yeah, go ahead. Uh, considering uh, Thomas Aquinas's thoughts on predestination, how? What are his thoughts on how? Um, that's a good question God does intervene I mean God creates the world and he gives us our natures right and uh, and Thomas even says he applies everything to its action so he pl applies our wills to that desire for happiness right and he's and he's conserving us in existence all the time so he, and then he even intervenes in kind of particular ways like when he gives grace to a person right that's a particular intervention but the the interventions of God in the world, let's take grace. I think grace is maybe the, the is that what you were really thinking of? Is, is grace or uh, more like events that occur, like an actual physical intervention rather than the granting of grace at the end? Okay, well, actually, some authors there's a there's a famous there's a famous uh, Thomas from the 17th century Domingo Banez who calls grace a kind of physical pre-motion from God. He even uses the word physical, but it's obviously physical and not, not in the sense of bodily, it's spiritual. But, oh, so you want to you talk about like God's like miracles and things? Mm -hmm. So what's the question then? So in the case of predestination, if God knows whether or not you'll see the light in the end, if he knows that it would take a divine intervention, a miracle, to cause that to be, would he will that? And if so... What about... Well, yeah, that's a good... Uh, so what? Uh, or, and if so, what about people that it takes a hundred or a million? <laughs> well, now, see, that's, that, it seems to me that's looking at it from, from our point of view. This, this, well, this person is going to take a miracle, so he does a miracle. If it takes a miracle for this person, it's because God has caused it to take a miracle. He's caused it to take a miracle. He doesn't see how things are and then calculate, depending on how, the way he knows that things work. 
right? He makes them work the way they work in the first place. So if he's made this person such that this person needs a miracle, he's already he's in, he's in, done that himself, right? So he doesn't. Hey, wait, this guy needs a miracle. So I better do a miracle. God doesn't. Strictly speaking, he doesn't respond to anything that happens in the world. He doesn't get any information from us. Now that raises questions about prayer. I've got another whole talk on prayer, but that we don't we don't really have time for. Right. But he sets the whole thing up in the first place, and, and so he's not kind of just jumping in, you know, to solve a problem. Like, that's the way it's done. That's our point of view. Yeah. So. Doesn't St. Thomas think that there's certain um, conditional causes that he set up? Oh, yeah. Like, like to this argument, and I guess that's maybe the point that C.S. Lewis is trying to make is like, uh, we live in a conditional universe. Like, if I strike a match, you know, fire comes. Yeah, sure. And if I pray for something, then I, then God will give me us grace and yeah. for it, or he will. Yeah. Maybe he's ordained certain things in the universe that. If these, th if we make these free choices, then these things. So I. Oh yeah, that's is that part of his way of, of um, I guess for me that's like a way of understanding predestination and free will. Well, no, that's certainly that's really important. There are um, conditionals that turn out not to be true. If I had prayed, I would have gotten it, but I didn't pray. It's still the case that if I had, I would have gotten it, and God set that up that way. That's right. Now I don't think that's Lewis's point though, because. I can say what I just said and still say he knows which one I'm going to do. Whereas Lewis has to say, well, no, he, he kind of leaves it up to me. And then he looks and sees what I do. And Lewis realizes that's a problem. And the only way Lewis can solve it is, it seems to me, it does, is, is not a very satisfactory way is to say that time doesn't really exist. And I think that destroys free choice completely. If you the time of it. So that's another issue. I don't think you need to go with Lewis's route. You need to, what you say is really important that there are alternative possibilities with the consequences that they would have had, which never come about. And that's the, our freedom is part of that. I do. I chose to do this. I could have done that. If I had done that, such and such a result. Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. There isn't just what actually happens and nothing else. That, it was, that was a point that Aristotle talks about. That there's Some people say that everything that happens is absolutely necessary. And what didn't happen, didn't happen because it was impossible. So everything that's possible happens. And whatever happens is the only stuff that's possible. And, that, and that, that's, that's not what you're saying, right? That's true, but I don't think that's Lewis's point. Yeah. We got to go? Okay. Well, Would you? Oh, I can give it someone else. Anybody else have one? Yeah, back there. Just really quickly. So back to the point that you earlier about God and his elect. So, <laughs> I know it always goes under this. Sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Well, he certainly has created them in a way that allows them to do that. Mm -hmm. if, if he had created them in a way that made it impossible, that would be strange. Right, so he's created them in a way to make it possible. So does, does that not mean that God is sort of determined? No, because they, they, it's also possible for them not to. They, they still have it in their power not to. And if there are any who are not elect, they have the possibility, they have the power to do it. If they fail, it's not because they can't do it. They could do it. Mm -hmm. They just don't. Okay? So he has to give us the power 
And he has to give the elect the power to do what they need to do, but that power doesn't determine them to do it. They also have the power not to do it. But they won't. But they, they won't not do it. And they he knows that. And he knows that. Now, how he knows that, that's kind of, that's pretty mysterious. Because right? he no, not because he made them and made them made them in such a way that they would do it. No, you can't say that. That would be determinism. Right. Yeah, that that's right. That would be determinism. And that's that's kind of that the, the alternative view of predestination that I criticized before. That view, it seems to me, doesn't understand the divine God's transcendence of the world. Thomas Thomas puts it very metaphysically. I guess we can close with this is very appropriate. He puts it very metaphysically. And I don't know if this will shed any light or just sound kind of like words, but he says. God is the universal cause of being as being, of the nature of being. And he causes not only, in other words, he doesn't just cause the things that exist. He causes what it is to exist. He causes the, the nature of existence, and he causes all the modes of existence, which include the necessary and the contingent, and the determined and the free. He causes all of those. So he causes the freedom with which we act. And, and he knows all the things that he causes. Okay? Mm -hmm. But the way we are certain, of, the way we know anything with certainty is because it's necessary. But he's beyond the necessary and the contingent. And he knows both. And how does that work? Well, we, just, you know, we, we have no clue. We can just reason the conclusion there has to be that kind of a cause. Okay? And that's about as far as we can get. Okay. All right. Good. Thanks. Thank you. Thank you. That was fun. Thank you.